0: EPC Power manufactures self-developed energy storage smart inverters made in their American factories with gigawatt-level capacity. EPC Power is headquartered in San Diego County, California, and recently opened an engineering and sales location in Helsinki, Finland, to support the growing global demand. Visit epcpower.com/energygang to learn more about the utility-scale and CLI product lines, and schedule a call to learn how they can help you power your energy storage projects. EPC Power excellence in power conversion. Hello, and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. In this episode, the US financial regulator is proposing that for the first time it'll compel companies to make standardized disclosures about climate risk. What's this gonna mean for investors and for businesses? Canada has an ambitious set of climate goals, and it's about to publish a detailed plan for how to achieve them. We're lucky enough to be joined by one of Canada's leading energy experts, who's going to tell us how that plan is going and what other countries can learn from it. And the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change recently published its latest assessment of climate impacts and how the world can adapt to them. We'll be discussing what that assessment means for energy. To talk about these topics, we're welcoming back Amy Myers Jaffe, who's a research professor and managing director of the Climate Policy Lab at Tufts University in Massachusetts. Hi, Amy. Welcome back.
1: Great to be here.
0: And I promised one of Canada's leading energy experts, and it's my pleasure to welcome to the show for the very first time, Andrew Leach, who's an associate professor at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Just before we get going, for the benefit of listeners who might not know you, do you want to just talk a little bit about your background in energy? How did you get into the energy business, and uh, how did you come to be doing what you're doing teaching at the University of Alberta?
2: Sure. Uh, I'm an economist by training and moved to Alberta in 2006. So that was right at the height of our oil sands growth boom. And so I almost would say I had an energy immersion uh, on moving here. And I've taught our energy and environmental management courses for, well, I guess since I, since I came so 16 years now. And uh, I've also had the opportunity to advise our provincial government to help develop our climate change plan here in Alberta, in 2015, and then uh, also act as an advisor frequently to our federal government.
0: Well, thanks very much for joining us today. Now, the first thing I want to talk about is hot breaking news. We've just had this announcement on Monday from the US Securities and Exchange Commission, the financial regulator, that it's proposing a climate disclosure rule. Under this proposed rule, the idea is that US companies that are registered with the SEC will have to, for the first time, report on the climate-related risks they face. This is a really big change. Governments, regulators and investors have been pushing for quite a few years now for companies to do more to disclose their climate risks. And many American companies do publish an assessment of the risks they face in terms of the potential physical threats posed by a warming world and in terms of the potential impact of future climate policies. But this would be the first time that US companies would be required to report on those risks in a standardised way, including a reporting of their greenhouse gas emissions. Now, rules aren't yet final. Once the proposal is published, the public has 60 days to submit comments before a final rule is voted on by the agency's four commissioners. But it does look quite likely that these rules will actually come into force because uh, the commissioners are currently three Democrats and one Republican, and there seems to be uh, a majority on the SEC backing these kind of rules. So, Amy, interested in your thoughts on this. As I say, kind of breaking news that the SEC has just agreed to formalise this proposal, but it's been Uh, several months in the making. What do you make of it? What to you are the key points in what the SEC is proposing?
1: Well, I think the thing to first explain to your listeners that sometime around 2010, the SEC said that companies need to report their quote unquote material risks, And that included something like climate risk. And so we're really just debating how to get it standardized and what the SEC would prosecute you for if you don't report it. So, and the big bugabaloo for this initial announcement, which is a little inside baseball, so I think there's a more consensus that companies should be reporting their annual greenhouse gas emissions for their own operations. Uh, that's called Scope 1 emissions. Uh, I think, generally speaking, people also agree that companies should include the emissions from the energy that they use. So, if you're You know, your electricity supplier is burning coal, then you're more carbon intensive than a business uh, that put, you know, solar panels directly on their data center, for example. That would be scope two. Uh, But the most controversial part is the SEC has sort of reached out and said, and also we're thinking of requiring companies to report on the emissions of suppliers and customers. So that would be if I'm using a widget, how many emissions went into that widget. If I'm selling gasoline, for example, I'm an oil company and I'm selling gasoline, then I would have to report on the emissions from the use of that gasoline. So that is called Scope 3, and that's a much more controversial thing. And the SEC has announced its intention to require companies to report on Scope 3 And that gets us into all kinds of things because if you're a large company, the SEC is saying you're going to have to be independently audited in your statements. And that means we all have to agree on a methodology for calculating scope three emissions. And, and that I think is a more challenging task, not, not impossible. A lot of companies already report their scope three emissions. And so the SEC is giving um, companies, the big companies till 2023, and then uh, all companies the twenty twenty four, but for scope three, they're saying you know twenty twenty four and twenty twenty five because to get everybody standardized to the same kind of reporting for for that that scale of emissions.
0: So to be clear, is every company going to have to report on its scope three emissions? I know that's been quite a lot of pushback from some companies that have said, well, it's actually really hard for us to calculate these emissions. We don't know exactly what emissions are created when our products are used, for instance, because that's not up to us. It's certainly something we've got no control over. And as you say, um, it may be even pretty difficult for companies to know what they are. There's no standardized methodology for those scope three emissions at the moment. So who is going to have to comply with this rule?
1: I think the point is there are companies that report to the SEC, publicly traded companies that are traded on a public exchange, and there are rules that apply to them. So these rules will only apply to those companies. It's not going to be like your local grocery store. We're talking about, you know, large public corporations that already use independent auditing firms uh, to do their financials. And, And there are Those auditing firms are preparing ways to do these standardized emissions reporting for scope three. So, I don't want to say that there's no way to do it, just that it, it, you know, the SEC is giving companies time and the goal is to have it be standardized. But the other thing the SEC is going to take on, which I think is very important, is that. If a company makes a public pledge, you know, we're going to be net zero by 2040, or we're going to be carbon neutral by 2030, you know, whatever it is companies are pledging, the SEC is saying, going, is saying that you cannot make a random pledge and not give the details to back that up. You have to inform your investors and the investment community what you mean by that pledge, how you're going to do it, you know, in more detail. And also, I think the SEC is going to require companies to report when they use at the offsets market um, for for carbon. So that's another big change. There's been a lot of controversy about how accurate these offsets are. They're currently a voluntary market. Um, And I think the SEC is looking to sort of assert that those kinds of reporting in public documents, corporate public documents have to be accurate.
0: So what is the SEC's ultimate goal here, do you think? I mean, are they actually trying to create a regulatory framework and to use financial regulation in a way that pushes companies to cut their emissions, that actually kind of increases the pressure on companies to cut emissions and that pushes them away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy and so on? Is it as simple as that or not?
1: No, that's the accusation, but that's completely inaccurate. Really what's happening here is that investors and the markets face a real risk here that companies that don't report would not necessarily be understood to be risky. So if you were an investor a few years ago in uh, PG&E, the California Electric Utility, they did not report how many of their wires could possibly cause a risk of wildfire or what the risk of wildfire was to their business. Um, and when they went bankrupt, there were many investors that were caught by surprise. So the SEC is looking to avoid that kind of cascading risk affecting markets in general. That's a good goal. And you know, to the extent that I report that my emissions are very, very high, and investors don't want to own my company because I have very, very high emissions and we feel like that's going to be a cost burden to bring them down. That's material information that investors have a right to know. And I think that's really the SEC's position. I think their goal is to really avoid basically what we economists call a market failure, where investors are are ill-informed about a real risk and that real risk uh, stimulates but sometimes a, a cascading effect in markets. And that that's what the SEC is looking to try to uh, prevent.
0: So, Andrew, how do you look at these proposals? And when you think about them from a Canadian perspective, is the Canadian government and financial regulator trying to do something similar?
2: Yeah, so I, I'm really excited to see this. And Canada is doing something similar. They have a, a national instrument that's in development right now. So they're a few weeks, probably, or a few months ahead of um, the SEC and that their draft reg was published in the fall. And it takes on much of the same approach, the TCFD approach, and it has a lot of the same sticking points, the scope one, scope two, scope three question that, that Amy raised. Um, w- one thing that's really interesting to me in this is, and you know, I agree with what Amy said, I think what they're trying to do is take away the companies or the registrants discretion about what is and what is not material, right? They don't want companies to be able to say, our emissions aren't material to investors. Uh, They say, you have to report scope one and scope two. Scope three, yeah, it might be material if you're a bank that has a massive energy portfolio, or it might not be material. Uh, If you're an oil company, I think we all know it's material. And that's where the fight is going to be in Canada as well, that uh, Canada's one step back. Maybe they're talking about definitely scope one, maybe scope two, and then there's sort of a big asterisk beside uh, scope three.
0: Yeah, you mentioned the prospect of a fight looming. As we've been saying, these are only proposals. There's time now for the public to comment on them. I thought there was a very interesting development recently when uh, President Joe Biden had to withdraw his nominee for the vice chair of the Federal Reserve, Sarah Bloom Raskin, she had to go through a nomination process and a um, confirmation process in the Senate. And it became clear that Senator Joe Manchin, very influential kind of swing senator from West Virginia, Democrat, but um, very much a supporter of fossil fuel industry and someone um, who cannot always be relied on to kind of follow the line set by the administration. uh, He said he wouldn't support her nomination. And he, in particular, highlighted her comments on the relationship between financial regulation and the energy transition. And she's been talking about, she wrote a piece last year, for instance, saying that financial regulators used, should be sort of pushing themselves. I think she's saying about maybe getting out of their comfort zone in terms of using the tools at their disposal to advance the energy transition, to accelerate the movement away from fossil fuels towards zero carbon energy. And as I say, basically, Joe Manchin thought that those comments made her unappointable and Uh, said he would vote against her. So nomination had to be withdrawn. It sounds like this is still then a pretty contested area, um, something where there are going to be some pretty vigorous debates on this. Um, The SEC, with a Democratic appointed majority on it, is going to back it at the moment, it looks like, but that may well not be the case when control of Congress changes, control of the uh, administration changes, as uh, it's bound to do over time at some time. What do you think, I mean, Amy, um, maybe your thoughts on this, and then Andrew, come to you in a moment. On, But in terms of then what this is going to end up meaning for companies, particularly when you're talking about phasing in rules over a few years, are companies actually really going to want to put a lot of effort into complying with this rule when you think it might have a different rule in just a few years' time?
1: Well, let me remind you um, that back during the uh, financial crisis, it became clear that there were too many speculators in the... Uh, front months of the futures markets for energy. And so the Commodities Future Exchange Commission, which regulates that, put in new rules. And those lawsuits are continuing. They just announced yet another possible new rule recently. So it's very hard to change these rules when you have parties that really don't want them. But it really is a very important Thing. And it's to politicize it, I think, is a mistake. I mean, we have to have companies reporting material risks to investors accurately. And so I think that the questions are going to hinge on, you know, you, you mentioned Senator Manchin already, you know, West Virginia as a state, it says it's going to start a lawsuit and and we've got different uh, parties, you know, that are going to contest uh, whatever rulemaking gets done, especially on scope three. So there is some suggestion that maybe the SEC should be very firm on scope one and two, and then, you know, take comments and others on the best way to do scope three. But in the end, the hullabaloo about the nominee had to do with some rumor about an impropriety that turned out to be false, but then made the whole process very complicated. And I do think that we've had these big catastrophes in the stock market where there's been some company that misreported its climate risk and investors got burned. That's happened multiple times. And so the, it's not advocacy. I mean, there, there really is a risk. We've got, you know, central banks, the central banks around the world have met on this risk. The Federal Reserve has weighed in on this risk. You know, it's a real risk, and I, I think the SEC would be remiss if it doesn't hold ground um, on, on insisting that companies report their material risks in general and their material climate risks in specific.
0: So, what do you think, Andrew? Do you think that this is going to continue to be a contested area? I mean, you mentioned earlier TCFD, Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosures, which had um, regulators and investors and companies involved in it. As I understood the basic principle of what they were doing, it was all about being voluntary. It was saying, you know, we'll have standards, best practice, which we think companies will sign up to uh, largely because it's what investors want. And we think, as Amy's just been saying, you know, these are serious material risks to companies. They have to address them. Investors really want companies to address them, but they're going to do that because investors want it, not because regulators compel them. What do you think? I mean, do you think there's a a virtue then in this kind of um, regulatory approach, kind of using the the stick as well as the carrot of investor approval? But as I say, given that it's potentially going to be very politically controversial, and there's going to be big problems with that approach.
2: Yeah, I think it's going to be controversial because you're adopting a framework that standardization is going to advantage some companies' sort of positions versus others, and we we see the same thing with how reserves are declared. There's a really great parallel here even think about between Canada versus the US where Canada uses forecast prices and US uses trailing prices we had for oil and gas reserves and we had the the case a couple of years ago in the news that uh, Exxon Mobil had to write off uh, in the US one of their oil sands projects or basically write their reserves down to zero you know that project was still producing and for Canadian purposes it still had reserves tied to it because it was forward looking prices in the US you had a very different story and so i think This is going to be the type of thing that still evolves over time. It's not going to be like we solve this problem and say, yeah, okay, we're done. But it is one where I think investors, the the information split between investors and management is too skewed at this point. So you need something where we're all speaking the same language. We have some oversight and... Investors can understand what companies are saying. And, and when they do that, you know, we've already seen some really interesting and, and challenging conversations come out here in Canada. I'll use Suncor as an example. They've been at the lead of, uh, I, I think, climate change disclosure and climate risk reporting. But it was probably three or four years ago where they came out as an oil company and basically said some of our growth plans are going to be compromised by this in certain scenarios of how global policy and regional policy evolves they also had to put a number on their exposure to canada's carbon pricing so despite the fact that you hear you know political talking points about how it's damaging investment and how it's all of this very um, challenging policy then you have a hard number that says well actually this cost us about a quarter a barrel and so having that Disclosure was also very clarifying on the policy front. So you're bringing everybody's talking points a little bit together. You can't say one thing to your investors and one thing to politicians and one thing on your advertisements on the Saturday Night Hockey game. You have to start to bring them together and have your got my Canadian Saturday Night Hockey in there. Come on. Uh, (laughs) But I'm sorry,
0: sorry for, for for non-Canadians. Just to explain that reference, what is, what is the Saturday Night Hockey game
2: mean? Uh, well, Hockey Night in Canada is our our national treasure. Is the CBC hockey broadcast, and uh, maybe not quite as uh, as ritualistic now as it used to be, but it's certainly the the gathering for most Canadians. If we're going to apply a stereotype to us uh, at all here, so Saturday Night Hockey.
0: Right. And meaning then that what? That that is the thing which kind of brings the whole country together?
2: That, you know, you that's where you'd see the ads for, you know, an oil company saying we're greener than the others. You'd see uh, a car company saying, you know, our, our pledge is to go to all electric vehicles, our pledge is to whatever the case may be. And so I think one of the things that this rule does or has the potential to do is to say, no, companies, you can't have different lines for the purposes of different audiences. We're going to hold you to account. If you have a pledge, as Amy said, you're going to have to tell me how you're going to meet it, how you're reporting on it. And you're probably going to be subject to some form of third party verification, if not audit.
0: Right. And I think definitely it is something everyone can agree on, which is that More information is better, and more clear and reliable information is always better, right?
2: Certainly, almost everyone will agree on that. I think with going back to my parallel of reserve declarations, if you've got a speculative gold development, you might, uh, you know, we have certainly have some history in Canada of people who've made a lot of money on uh, gold where there was no reserves in the uh, in existence at all. So, in their case, more information early on might not have been better. But for investors and the public, I think it's always a better (laughs) thing.
0: Now, I want to talk about Canada's emissions reduction plan. When we look at energy and climate policy in the US, it can be really interesting, I think, to look at what's going on in Canada. The two countries have many similarities. They're both high-income countries in North America, of course, they're both large oil and gas producers, and they both have federal systems of government, and they both have very similar climate targets. President Biden has announced goals for the US of net zero emissions for the power sector by 2035, and for the whole economy by 2050. And Justin Trudeau, Canada's Prime Minister, has set those same goals for his country. However, there are some pretty big differences. And in particular, Canada's net zero goal of 2050 was actually enshrined in legislation passed last year. That same law also sets out a detailed framework for how the government has to make progress towards that objective. That framework includes something that's called an Emissions Reduction Plan, an ERP, which is supposed to show details of how the government proposes to achieve the first interim target on the road to net zero, which is a 40 to 45% reduction in emissions from 2005 levels by 2030. Now, the deadline for that plan to be published is very soon. It's next week, in fact, March the 29th. So the clock really is ticking. But definitely when it comes out, it's going to be A really interesting thing in terms of of Canadian energy policy, and I think also in terms of energy policy for the world and any country that's thinking about how to cut its emissions. Now, Andrew, as I say, important fact about this plan is it's not published yet, right? But do we know what's going to be in it? How how many of the details are yet available?
2: The big policy pieces are already in place. There's some Meat to still be put on the bones of, of some of the policies, but the carbon pricing framework. So, we have a national carbon price that imposes either federally or will allow equivalent policies at the provincial level, carbon prices that are accelerating to 170 Canadian dollars per ton. So, you know, 140 ish US dollars, I guess, per ton of carbon. We have a low carbon fuel standard that's sort of painted off the, the California approach to some degree. Uh, we have now proposals for an oil and gas uh, sector-specific emissions cap that should be coming in into play very shortly. And the one that I think is uh, behind the scenes a little bit is a commitment to net zero electricity across Canada by 2035, but with a specific no grid-facing or grid-connected Fossil fuel generators after that time period, so it's a much more aggressive turn even than what was proposed. I think in the U.S., this is a you know closing down fossil fuel generators uh, type policy that's that's coming forward in Canada. So a lot of big policy pieces, but still probably a pretty hard reach to get to that target.
0: So this sounds like a very ambitious, very radical set of proposals, really a couple of things. I mean, I will come on to the question of is it practical and can it be implemented first? But if it was implemented, have people modelled the effects on the Canadian economy and so on? I mean, what would the impact of this kind of plan be?
2: Sure. there are a, a few a few groups that have done extensive modelling, and and I think, as it would be the case in any economy, you have models with very ambitious technology assumptions or very optimistic, technology assumptions that show limited impact on green jobs and and a lot of positive story and models that are less optimistic about that technological progress in the near term. And I would say probably less optimistic about global action. Uh, The less optimistic you are, the harder these targets are to reach. And even US action, I think we we somewhat underplay how much uh, US action matters to Canada just simply because it creates a much broader market for some of our abatement technology companies methane reduction in oil and gas for example if the US is acting you just your new technology has a 10 times larger market than if it's just Canada acting alone and so all of those things are are really important to how damaging or or how much of an opportunity these policies are
0: and you talk about technological progress presumably though for the um this
2: immediate plan, the one looking out to 2030. Technology is not going to change a lot by then, is it? No, I think on the 2030 plan, there's more of a deployment question, right? It's uh, carbon capture and storage, and, and we're still talking about 45Q-style tax credits and the degree to which that will be rolled out. It's deployment of existing renewable energy technologies. 2030 is pretty short timeline for any of the small modular reactor-type developments, but there are we do have a pilot project underway right now. To get some of that off the ground, but you're right; it's not really a you know what's unknown, but it's the deployment side of things out to 2030. Uh, but then, giving that longer run lens out to 2040s and 50s, that's where are you setting up the framework today that makes it credible that people are going to continue to invest in those uh, emissions declining technologies.
0: And that carbon price you're talking about, as you say, 170 dollars Canadian by 2030, about 140 dollars a tonne US, that's really pretty high by international standards, right? I mean, it's higher than the price of carbon has ever got in the EU, for instance. I think if you said tomorrow to people, we're going to have great news, we're going to have a carbon price of $140 a tonne in the US, people would absolutely freak out here. Is this something which Canada is ready for, you think?
2: Well, I think we've had a couple of elections already where this has been central to the Trudeau government's platform is, you know, 2015, 2019. And just recently, that's what they ran on. And you saw a large majority of Canadians either vote for that policy or for parties that were proposing more stringent policies than what the Liberals had. So there's certainly still some staunch opposition to it. But I think generally speaking, the question of a carbon price has been at least not uh, yeeted into the yard by the Canadian electorate. Uh, But, you know, it's still something that we're seeing. Talk about people voting with their wallets. There's still a lot of uh, reticence among, for example, the large oil and gas companies to bet on that carbon price trajectory and say, okay, we're willing to do some major capital intensive abatement activities On the renewable energy side, you're seeing more people willing to bet on the value of those environmental attributes that come from the carbon price and the offset regimes, et cetera. But it's still not 100% I'm willing to take that to the bank.
0: And if you model that in terms of its effect on a gallon of gasoline, a uh, million British thermal units of gas and so on, can have some pretty big impact on it.
2: Yeah. And and certainly now what you're seeing both, uh, at least where I am in Alberta, Uh, We've seen the natural gas prices increase, as most other markets have. We've seen gasoline prices increase. And so that's and we've also seen electricity prices through the roof. And so that's put maybe more pressure. And it's been a convenient, in some sense, political um, talking point to blame the carbon tax disproportionately for all of the inflation impacts, uh, the food prices, everything else. It's all all carbon tax, as far as some of our, our politicians are concerned, despite what the evidence tells us.
0: Right. And that's at a current level of how much is it now?
2: So right now we're $40 a ton, per ton. Right.
0: So quite a way to go in eight yeah. years from 40 to $170 a ton is still, if it's controversial now, could be even more so by 2030.
2: Yeah, and it's and it's ramping up, you know, the the speed of increase right now when we're adding $10 a ton per year it creates some interesting bets for people holding for example environmental attributes. You know that something that's worth $40 a ton right now is going to be worth 50 next year. Do you hold it or do you sell it? To what degree are you willing to bet on 60, 70, 80 a ton holding those credits? And so you've seen governments make little tweaks to the rules to force people to sell them early, to not allow banking in the same degree. So there's a lot of playing around about what do we think the future price is going to be.
0: EPC Power manufactures self-developed energy storage smart inverters made in their American factories with gigawatt level capacity. These inverters have industry-leading response time, advanced control features, and grid-forming capabilities. EPC is headquartered in San Diego County, California. To support growing global demand, they recently opened an engineering and sales branch in Helsinki, Finland, and are launching an East Coast factory this year. EPC Power is expanding its presence as the largest U.S. grid-scale inverter manufacturer, delivering over a gigawatt of energy storage inverters to date, and over 2 gigawatts by the end of this year. Visit www.epcpower.com energygang to learn more about their utility scale and CNI product lines and schedule a call to learn how they can help you power your energy storage projects. EPC Power, excellence in power conversion. So Amy, what do you make of Canada's strategy as you've been watching it?
1: Well, I think the interesting, most interesting paradigm for Canada's strategy is that Canada is squeezing out as many emissions as they can from their domestic economy to leave up the limited emissions that they're gonna have to be available to export, continue to export the oil and gas for revenue. And actually that paradigm would not necessarily be a bad paradigm for the United States. Um, In the United States, I've worked with some colleagues at University of California, Davis. Uh, They have projections that electric cars could squeeze a million barrels of gasoline oil equivalent out of the market by 2040 in the United States. Uh, Maybe more depending on how accelerated we get uh, with high oil prices. But then there's this question about energy security because the United States has been increasing its natural gas exports to Europe in the form of liquefied natural gas. And we export crude oil from the United States, which again can be very beneficial to allies in Europe and elsewhere. So the question is, could we do the same thing? Could we have a political compromise? Because we have a vast potential to squeeze greenhouse gas emissions out of the U.S. economy, squeeze out more coal, bring in more electric cars, do all kinds of things that could be in a bill, and that bill could then still enhance exports of liquefied natural gas that might knock out coal in some other country. So And part and parcel of that, as Andrew mentions, is this willingness to force the American industry to stop leaching its methane out into the sky, whether that's through flaring or just because it has leaky equipment, um, which the Biden administration was already moving in that direction at $100 oil, the 5 to $0.25 that costs per barrel seems like pretty small pittance. Um, And you have some very forward-looking companies in the United States. There's a firm that's not a household name. It's called EQT. They're actually the largest producer of natural gas in the United States. And their chairman just unveiled a sort of national pitch strategy that would be some combination of many electric cars, lots of solar energy, and uh, exports of LNG. So we're starting to see some debate on that also in the United States.
0: So question, what is the global impact of that, right? Because you can imagine, I mean, the kind of, you know, the, the reductio ad absurdum, the kind of the limit of this policy is where if you're a big oil and gas producer, like Canada or the US, you cut your own emissions to zero. You have, you know, you get to net zero and you're all on EVs and renewables and whatever else it might be, hydrogen, nuclear. And yet you still produce as much oil and gas as before, And you export it, and you export it for job creation and for the export revenues, and as you say, for energy security, and it's maybe a a tool for kind of um, diplomacy in the world and so on. Does that actually help the global climate then if you do that, where you are, as I say, restricting your own consumption, but producing as much as ever? I mean...
1: Well, I think the first point is to get to the, would you produce, be producing as much? Because remember, you wouldn't be producing for your own domestic demand. So in the United States, we use 20 million barrels a day of oil and then an additional amount of natural gas. So that number would definitely go down. So what we're talking about is providing energy for transition in other countries. And it does, I think, have to go dovetail with deals like we saw at Glasgow, where the United States and some European countries got together and offered a development aid to South Africa to retire its coal and come up with a, you know, Green New Deal plan for coal workers in South Africa and try to help that country transition its economy to a lower carbon growth footing. So, I, I you know, it's a complicated set of policies that need to be implemented, it's hard to do anything complicated in today's world because everybody takes everything and turns it into a soundbite that's you know unsuccessful. But, you know, it's possible. I mean, we have a global climate system where we have annual meetings, the COPs, and and it's is possible, I think for countries through their nationally determined contributions and through coordination with international financial markets for mitigation at technology to try to get to a better footing where countries that can afford to abate their emissions, like the United States and Canada, take the most biggest actions first and then help other countries follow that development model over time.
2: I think every climate conversation has, you know, you wait 10 years and it'll be back on the table. And I remember back in the Kyoto era where Canada was petitioning for credit for supplying the U.S. with gas because we were helping the U.S. to decarbonize. So you've had this uh, these types of how do we get get credit conversations been around forever. But uh, I think the broader question to me, it's always a, a different conversation for oil versus gas. Right. If you and we're, we're going to pivot to the IPCC report in a second. But if you look at the mitigation pathways in the 1.5 degree scenarios or the 2 degree scenarios, there are very different paths relating to natural gas. There aren't that many different paths relating to oil. So you can say, you know, we have a credible internally and externally consistent story of more gas tied to global emissions abatement in a climate constrained world. It's much harder for Canada to have the line of, you know, we're just supplying a world that has an insatiable demand for oil while believing that that same world is acting on climate change. If if you believe the world is acting on climate change, that insatiable demand for oil is going to, you know, it's just going to be a demand at a much smaller total quantity, I guess, uh, over time. And and so for me, you almost have to have separate oil and gas conversations. You can't have them as one.
0: So as you've been saying, important background to all this is... The recent report that came out from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is, I guess, essentially explaining to us why we should be worried about any of these these issues in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. The IPCC publishes these regular assessment reports, which are basically intended to summarise the current state of scientific knowledge about how the climate's changing and why and what effect it's having. These assessment reports are huge exercises. They involve tens of thousands of scientists and hundreds, just as lead authors in each section. And they're broken down into three working groups. There's Working Group 1, which is on the basic climate science, and that came out last August. Working Group 2, looking at climate impacts, adaptation and vulnerability, is the one that just came out. That was published at the end of last month. And Working Group 3, which covers mitigation, in other words, curbs on greenhouse gas emissions, is coming out next month in April. And then there's a synthesis report which uh, pulls it all together, and that's going to come out in September. Now, these reports often come in for a great deal of criticism, and I'm sure some of it is justified, but an enormous amount of work goes into them, and they're enormously detailed, and there really isn't anything better out there in terms of capturing the state of current scientific thinking about climate change. And I do think it's surprising very often how people, apparently on all sides of the climate debate, seem often not to have read them, or certainly not to have Understood them properly. And I would urge everyone to do that. If you are at all interested in climate change, the thing you have to, have to, have to do is go and read the IPCC report. Certainly, the um, uh, the summaries for policymakers are actually pretty short, There's about 20, 30 pages or so for each of these working group reports. So it's not even an enormous amount to read, but I would say it really is well worth reading if you have any interest in this subject, any presumptions towards having an opinion or taking a view on this. I'd say, urge you to read these reports. So although this Working Group 2 report I was talking about came out a little while ago, I still think it's a really important one. And I still think it's well worth uh, us talking about it now on this show. Amy, uh, come to you maybe first on this. What did you think? I mean, as you looked at this Working Group 2 report on, as I say, covering the subjects of adaptation, how you adapt to climate risk, and what are the impacts of a changing climate... What did you make of it?
1: Well, I think the most important thing about the report is really the here and now. So how many billions of people are already having adaptation vulnerability, right? Uh, you know, three to 3.3, 3.6 billion people are already suffering from the effects of climate change globally. But then I think the other thing that was very important that came out from the report is that there are places where we might've reached a point of no return where adaptation is not even going to be possible. We have to be thinking constructively about different geographies and what's possible in different geographies and what needs to happen. And then I think a big takeaway is this, I call it sort of cascading or momentum risk. So I have one kind of cascading risk. So heat and drought is one we've all seen around the world. Uh, But then what does that lead to? That leads to crop failure and tree mortality. And that in itself contributes to health problems, food insecurity, biodiversity loss, which then, you know, cascades to other risks. So we've seen wildfires, we've seen insects uh, that cause not only biological tree and other kind of plant suffering, but also vector disease We're seeing permafrost thaw that threatens livelihoods of people and also, you know, construction of buildings and so forth in the Arctic. Um, And then all of those things that we expected to be carbon sinks, say in the Arctic or in uh, peatlands, are now becoming emitting. Or when there's a wildfire, it means a forest is emitting and not a sink. And so I do think that one of the things the report really highlights is the fact that we need to be thinking about our sort of natural resource solutions in a geographic way if we're going to lose a carbon sink in one place then we need to be enhancing carbon sinks in other places where that's possible and in a kind of a, a and that's, that should be both global, national and local the globe needs to be thinking about wetlands and forest lands and so forth agricultural lands kind of in the same way the wine industry has already responded. You know, in, in Europe and in California, the wine industry is moving north to adjust to changing temperatures. But we need to be thinking about that for the whole global food system and for the operation of carbon sinks. Um, and I don't think there's been enough attention paid to that. This report should highlight that more needs to be done.
0: I mean, as you say, starting to think about those issues with wetlands and forests and how we preserve them as carbon sinks is part of the broader issue of adaptation, right? How do we change in response to climate change? How do we change our own societies? How do we improve resilience? How do we make it more possible for people to uh, withstand the impact of climate change? What did you make of what the report had to say about that? I mean, did you think it was useful and constructive on those kind of subjects?
1: I thought we needed a much heavier, more intensive policy section, looking at electricity reform and policy and decarbonization across the world to build more resilience. We're going to need cooling centers in many parts of the world that don't exist today, but we have to do that in a way that doesn't raise emissions. And so I think the report did not have enough details the way we've seen in the past, reports have had great details on mitigation strategies and the technologies that are needed and and pathways to achieve those things. I just don't think that we have seen the same level of detail in the adaptation efforts, and we need to really accelerate that.
0: Yeah, I agree. That is very interesting. One of the things I was struck by was um, when the report talks about resilience and facing up to climate impacts and damage done by climate change, it basically says that societies that are stronger and more robust in every respect to all kinds of shocks are also going to be stronger and more robust to climate shocks. So it says, it's good to have higher income, it's good to have strong institutions, it's good to have uh, a properly functioning government and so on. And it did make me think that then there are some interesting questions about, for instance, economic development. I mean, it it talks a little bit about climate resilient development and the idea of being able to um, have development and growth that um, is resilient and can continue under conditions of a changing climate. But it did make me think there are bound to be trade-offs, for instance, between economic development and emissions. How much do you want to build new coal-fired power plants, which could be essential for or valuable, certainly for economic development? The electricity is essential for economic development. Coal-fired power plants might not be, but they might be a easy way to provide that electricity and yet obviously have negative consequences in terms of increased emissions. And some of those trade-offs are clearly very complex and Hopefully, they will be resolved in the synthesis report, which is pulling it all together, which, as I say, including the working group three report, which is on mitigation and emissions, is focused on that. But as you were saying, Amy, it's a difficult question to pull all those threads together. And really, we need more on that from the IPCC in terms of just kind of thinking about those kind of trade-offs. So now, Andrew, what do you think?
2: So I read it in a little bit of a different way. I was uh, I've been focused a lot on climate law and and some of the rights cases that are uh, out. We've got one that's made it further through the courts than any other in Canada and Ontario right now about rights to a healthy environment. Of course, the US had the Juliana case and then the two Shell cases, well the two Dutch cases, Shell and Urgenda. That that sort of framework was what I had in my mind when I was reading this. And you know, you're getting that really strong sense as amy talked about of these regional irreversible impacts that make a particular lifestyle no longer tenable no longer viable and we've got a lot of that in the canadian north and so that was that was what really struck me and and i think to amy's point on the on the mitigation or adaptation strategies how local those things are right there's there's stuff that's going to be necessary in the canadian arctic that has no relevance to the lower 48 in the US. I mean, certainly has a lot of parallels between Alaska and and, uh, the Canadian Arctic. But I think, you know, how regional, how local those effects are going to be. And then that sneaks into these, I I think a lot of this climate litigation that's going to become more prevalent over the next little while.
0: And what is the implication then for that climate litigation? You mean, does it uh, essentially count as evidence- in favor of climate litigation because it strengthens the case of communities that are being affected by climate change
2: absolutely it and depends on the the rights framework in the different countries of course but your ability to live the only life that is known to you so to speak uh, particularly in Canada's north if you're able to demonstrate that the policies and behaviors of government and industry are preventing you from having that access to whether it's from a, an indigenous traditional lifestyle or simply just a, a regional, the only regionally viable lifestyle that gives you a much better anchor than global climate change damages to anchor one of these effects. And and you know we saw in in the Netherlands a big uh, push put on Shell by the courts. We've seen uh, requirements put on the Dutch government for. Uh, more stringent emissions reductions at home, despite the fact that they're still small parts of the of the global emissions picture. And so I think there's a link here between some of these very acute regional effects, but then the ability to translate those into real requirements and real remedies that come through the court. Yeah,
0: that is really interesting. I guess it also points to one of those areas where we reach the limits of what science can tell us, that we get into questions which are no longer scientific, they're actually political, and they're moral, and they're about value judgments, and they're about whose interests get heard and cared about, and whose don't. And a lot of those things are even harder to work out than the scientific issues, I guess. Amy, was there anything else? Did you want to come in at all on any of this?
1: Well, I, I do think that, you know, when we use the phrase, just transition, we mean more than just who loses their job, you know, inside the United States, say, if that we're using that expression here. I mean, there's a global reference to the just transition. And I think it gets to what some of these lawsuits are trying to address, that there are populations, communities, um, indigenous peoples who are affected much more directly and impactfully than in other communities. And how do you redress that? How do you come up with both an adaptation policy and an adaptation finance policy and a mitigation strategy and a mitigation finance strategy that's both global but also just? And and how do you tackle all of that, which is, you know, pretty challenging. And and I do think that the tide has turned and really globally now, there's more attention being paid to the disproportionate harm that comes to certain communities and what is the international responsibility for that. And, and some of that is going to get more and more backed up as scientific methods for what we call attributional science become stronger, which we've seen. So we can tell you what kind of emissions has contributed by this much percent to certain kinds of damages that have come as a result of higher emissions, and the, the closer and better calibrated that science becomes, then you do get this whole, you know, who has to pay question becomes a much more interesting question, because then you start to get not only national courts, but possibly global courts that could educate on this question of whose responsibility to fund adaptation activity. It is, whose responsibility is that? Is it a moral question or is there actually a legal responsibility that one could scientifically point to in an attribution kind of way? And bringing us back all the way back around to our SEC discussion, one of the risks that the SEC, I think, wants to address is if you're a company in the United States and you have coal ash ponds that are then released by flooding and cause health concerns, do you have to put that liability on your filings to the SEC? Because that kind of thing seems pretty material to your future performance. And, and so when we think about a global system of disclosure, you could see how that could contribute to our understanding of what needs to be done.
0: Yeah, I think that is a great point. I guess the way I would think about it is that these legal, political, even moral questions are really difficult and hard to resolve, but they're going to be approached in a better way. The better our information is, the deeper is our scientific understanding, the more accurate our data are, the more we really kind of understand and can follow the processes, physical processes, and so on that are involved. So it has to be better for the world. And it has to help resolve some of these issues. If we know more about them, we keep studying them, keep learning more, pushing back the frontiers of knowledge, that's got to be worth doing. So we're going to have to wrap it up very soon. Before we do, we have our usual tradition of the free electron, things that the guests have brought in themselves they want to talk about. um, Andrew, uh, what's yours? What what did you want to raise with us?
2: So I I spent a lot of stress on this, but the column over the last week and a half that really made me hopeful, and it ties into all of what we've talked about today, was uh, Jeff Jones writing in the Globe and Mail on Canadian banks coming forward with goals around um, financed emissions. And I think that's part of the picture, but that's such an important picture in Canada because we basically we have very few large banks. They are outsized voices in our policy world and in our uh, financial community. And so to see them coming forward and saying we're going to set goals on finance emissions. So you have Jeff Jones's piece in the show notes. And I think it's one of the it's, it's niche, but it's one of the more optimistic pieces for me on, on Canadian climate policy.
0: Although also presumably a potentially controversial one because of all these complaints about, well, this means cutting off the supply of capital to the oil and gas industry, particularly right now, given what we've been seeing in terms of soaring oil and gas prices, there's bound to be some pushback on this.
2: Yeah, absolutely. But I think I've always said, you know, our our oil and gas sector will be better off in the long term if they're making the case that their investments make sense in a climate constrained world. And if they can't make that case, that might give them a get-out-of-jail-free card for a couple of years, but that's not a long-term strategy. Amy, what's yours?
1: Well, I'd like to follow up on Andrew. I mean, we've seen a lot of interesting reports in the last couple of days. You're fast-tracking deep offshore wind, which has a huge potential. Companies coming up with green hydrogen plans. I think, you know, sort of the thing that's really struck me that happens really every time, and I've written a book on the subject of, you know, repeating oil price shocks, is that every time we have an oil price shock, we get more of a decoupling between economic growth and the use of oil. And that comes about in in a wide variety of different ways. Uh, We even have Chevron saying they're going to make uh, fuel from manure in California, um, investing billions of dollars to do that. So I, I think that whenever we have you know, national and international discussion about the price of oil, it always leads to innovation. And I look forward to seeing the end of the current oil shock and then the innovation it's going to bring because we've been seeing that innovation since the 1970s.
0: Thanks very much for that, it's very interesting. Mine is something not really energy-related. It's books I've been reading, uh, really inspired by watching terrible pictures from the crisis in Ukraine and kind of thinking about that and wanting to learn more about the background. I don't know if you know the Belarusian writer Svetlana Alexievich, who won a Nobel Prize for literature a few years back. Absolutely brilliant writer, uh, sort of journalist come oral historian who... Just interviews lots and lots of ordinary people and talks to them about their experiences and um, has written a lot about Russia and the Soviet Union, the post Soviet world. I've been reading a couple of books by her, one called Zinky Boys, which is about the Soviet war in Afghanistan and the experiences of the soldiers and the families of uh, people who fought there. And also a book called Lost Witnesses, which is about children's experiences of World War Two and then remembering what happened to them then very very powerful books very moving a lot of the time and just really valuable I think in providing a bit of context and as I say it's kind of helped me a lot kind of try to make sense of and understand what we're seeing at the moment so I'm sure a lot of people know those books already as I say she's a famous writer won the Nobel Prize but if you uh, don't know her work I would definitely urge you to check her out. So that is all from us today. I want to say thanks very much. Uh, Thanks a lot, Andrew, for joining us. Thanks
2: for checking that one off my bucket list.
0: (laughs) Excellent. Well, hopefully we'll have you back on again before it's time to uh, put the final check on that list. Uh, And thank you very much, Amy. Thanks for coming in.
1: Always great to see you, Ed.
0: I hope to see you soon as well, too. And thanks very much to all of you for listening. Please do let us know what you think. As usual, uh, we're very keen to hear your comments, suggestions, ideas for subjects we ought to be covering. Um, we're on Twitter at, at The gang, and I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks with all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition.
1: Until then, Goodbye.